Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. All right, hey everyone, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I am Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. I have a special guest today, not the second most handsome doctor that I know, Dr. Baraki, but we have the Mike Tusharer. Uh, he is joining us live from Wichita Falls, Texas. That is not a joke. He's actually there. Uh, okay, so just to give people a, back, a bit of background, if they're not familiar with you, uh, we already introduced you. Your name's Mike Tusharer. You're living in Colorado now. You guys have, you and your wife were both, uh, you were previously military. Your wife's still military, because I know you, and now you guys are going to the Netherlands, I assume, for military-related things. So what do you do? What's what's your job? What's your, how do you make, how do you make money? Yeah, yeah. Like, why, why do people care about it? Right, right, right. right. <laughs> um, well, I'm a powerlifting coach. Um, that, that's, I think, probably the best description that I've got right now. Um, back in 2008, I started a company called Reactive Training Systems. Uh, I was coaching a lot of people at the time. Uh, I was a high-level powerlifter myself and um, you know, kind of wanted a, a way to uh, crystallize a lot of the things that I was learning. Uh, so... I started writing more and then that turned into uh, online coaching and, you know, 2008 timeframe is uh, kind of in the beginning of the whole online coaching thing. Uh, so uh, that really uh, took off for me and started coaching more and more people competing at a higher and higher level myself. Um, and yeah, you know, it just kind of grew and it became this thing that I'm, you know, started doing full time and then hiring assistant coaches and, uh, you know, now this year, so IPF Worlds is coming up. The, so the Powerlifting World Championship is coming up next month. Uh, we got 16 of our lifters who are going to the World Championship. Uh, oh. Yeah, I'm, I'm super psyched about that. Like I've counted that number a ridiculous number of times because I, I feel like there's no way that's right, <laughs> you know. But yeah, man, it's, it's really cool. Yeah, so that's actually impressive. And, and I think it's, it is a thing. I didn't actually write this question down, but it, it does bear discussing. You know, it, it's been said that uh, you, you know, 
you should seek out a coach who maybe isn't necessarily the best performer, isn't a high level athlete, uh, because, you know, if you're a high level athlete, uh, or someone you only work with high level athletes, you don't actually have to be that good at your job because you're, you know, selecting for high level genetics and high level performers. And so maybe you just don't have the best (laughs) sense of, you know, what works for a normal person. I mean, that's certainly been put out there. And I, I think, uh, at face value, there's maybe some logical merit yeah. to that. You know, just if you say it, it doesn't necessarily sound wrong to you. But then if you think about it, you posted something on, on Facebook, uh, might have been a year ago or more, where you, you basically said, are, are, is anyone suggesting that you would hire somebody who's bad at the sport that right. they're purporting to coach? <laughs> because, you know, th- because most good coaches had a decent you know, or at least modicum of proficiency with respect to performance in their own sport. So, I mean, you're taking 16 lifters to IPF Worlds. We have a handful of people going to IPF Worlds. And and I think it's easy to sort of write that off if you aren't taking anybody, (laughs) maybe to IPF Worlds or similar similar level performance. But do you have any thoughts on sort of what, what's that on that? Yeah, I think there is a skill that that is involved there like if you gave me a a novice lifter i don't think i would like i haven't developed the skill set that's required to coach a novice lifter uh the same way but there's a lot of overlap right i think once you hit the intermediate level uh you know you I, i think at least in powerlifting it centers around basic proficiency you know like i don't I don't work with that many like real novices, so uh, it doesn't quite make sense to me how you couldn't understand, you know, the basic movements, right? But once you've got that basic proficiency, from speaking for myself, at that point it's a system, and I'm sure as we'll come up uh, in our discussion, like my thing is always about focusing on the individual and uh, optimizing the training for that individual. Like, what can I, what can I change about the training so that this person's getting the best results possible? And that process looks basically the same from anyone like at an immediate level, all the way up to the best in the world. Yeah. And I think there's things, there are things to be learned, especially, you know, even if you are rather, there are principles that you learn by coaching uh, post the people post novice and particularly to a high level of performance that, are almost that are, are universally uh, applicable, you know, as far as you know how is strength generated and displayed most optimally, and and you can you can work backwards from there, and and, and then coupled with the fact that our occupation is empirically based yeah. in that we're taking our our the best evidence that we have to date and our previous experiences and then applying it to a, a unknown set of variables with a new lifter and seeing how they do. And then you adjust going forward. But if you if you don't have that, that top end sort of experience, that top end knowledge, it'd be very difficult to sort of come up with that or happen upon it just organically because you right. you wouldn't. Yeah, you just wouldn't have the exposure. Well, that's the kind of the other side of that statement, right? Like, well, you know, if you only work with high level people, then you kind of basically wouldn't understand. Right. Or who's the hardest demographic to get? that kind of results with you know like if you you know if you're only working with the the people that are already basically at their limit and you get results even for them you know 
like you could you could approach it from that perspective too like i don't think that's necessarily uh completely honest either <laughs> you know uh so like i don't think either extreme is is really the way to go there mike oh yeah a lot of people probably in today's social media driven world may not know of your current prs or like your past history i think the last time you lifted competitively at a very high level was like 2014 2015 um Take us through, like, what are your best numbers, raw and then equipped, and uh, and, and just yeah, give us a brief uh, history of your powerlifting career. Yeah, so I, I had a couple IPF world records for a while. Uh, most recently, the IPF deadlift record at 120 kilos. Um, yeah, it, then uh, uh, then not. So <laughs> the uh, sport moves fast sometimes. So for, from uh, like 2008, 2014, even into 2015, I mean, you were the guy for the United States uh, in the 120, 125 class. So, and you, you've won IPF, the IPF Worlds a couple of times. Yeah. 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 Until Dennis came along and started crushing everybody. <laughs> Man, the, the dude is incredible. Like he's just a, you know, just such a talented lifter and it's been cool to, to kind of get to know him and, and, uh, you know, help how I can with training. Like we talked about, uh, we talked about this for a long time before we actually started working together on, on training stuff. Um, and I was never really like, I, I never wanted to like push him to work with me because like selfishly I was, it's kind of like, what are you going to do with a guy like that? Like he comes in and, and wins worlds by a hundred pounds, you know, and, and like, what do you do? There's so many ways to mess it up. Uh, and not like, you don't even know if it's possible to make it that much better. Uh, but finally we, we ended up, uh, starting to work together and, and that's gone, that's gone well. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's just such a, he's an incredible lifter to watch, uh, just because of stuff like that, just because it's like, well, geez, you're just so damn strong, <laughs> you know? Well, how much does it bother you that he squats barefoot in his garage? And it's like, oh, it's nine. What I think his last video was 925. It, he was like, I had to load an extra plate because I forgot. And I, I was like, did you forget to put shoes on too? Like, well, hats <laughs> off to you for actually, you know, giving him good programming because he's, he has gotten, he continues to get better, which is the freaky thing. I mean, I... Uh, I joke around with Baraki, uh, my partner, all the time that uh, when I give him a little programming advice or whatever, it's actually to sabotage him because I don't want, you know, <laughs> I, need to, <laughs> I need to preserve my own my own uh, selfish wants here. Sure. Um, okay, so I know we mentioned this year you have 16 lifters going to the IPF Worlds. Do you have a count of how many different lifter or how many people you've sent to IPF Worlds over your entire coaching career? I, I do, but... I couldn't tell you what the number is off the top of my head. Uh, it's gotten to be more every year. Was, so, uh, and I'm only really counting the classic worlds, which started in 2012. Uh, but you know, it was like four and then six. And then, you know, now this year we're up to 16, you know, I can tell you that I think we're at 14 IPF world record holders, which is, which is pretty cool too. And, and so how long have you been coaching for, uh, cause I, I know when you were, you were, you went, you went to school at the Academy and uh -huh. you were coaching people at that time. Yeah. I was kind of a de facto team coach just cause I, 
ended up being like the most senior guy on the team in my second year, you know? And, uh, yeah, so was coaching guys then, uh, and learned a ton through those first few years, you know? And then, uh, especially as time went on, um, you know, more and more and more. And then in 2008, uh, that's when actually somebody emailed me and was like, Hey, will you coach me on online? And I was like, that's a thing. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess, I guess prior to that, people were like mailing programs, like in the mail. Really? Just, you know, yeah. Well, that's what I was told, which I, <laughs> like, <laughs> how do you do that? Like, uh, but you know, I mean, luckily for everyone, I mean, you know, at the time, I, I don't know if people realize it. So I, I got into powerlifting right about the same time that you were actually coaching folks, but that was like my first exposure. But at the time, if you went in online, which, you know, was really blowing up at the time, the, the only things you could find was like deep squatter, yeah. like date, you know, that, that website, yeah, man. you could find some, some stuff on T nation, which I think was just testosterone.com or something like that at the time. And then like random forums that were just, you know, people talking about lifting weights and you're like, uh, what do I do with all this? I mean, because it just wasn't organized or what it just wasn't as big as it is now. Now yeah. there's, you know, and, and, and further the actual science at the time on training, particularly from the United States, uh, was almost non-existent. Oh you yeah. Know? So, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it's just such a night and day difference. Like I, I remember deep squatter, man. What a great website that was. Yeah. Like it, it was yeah. just fantastic. I spent hours on that site, uh, and Dr. Squat's website, uh, and he had a forum that was, and it was actually, uh, good. You know, like I really, I really enjoyed that. But, um, that and powerlifting USA, I remember reading powerlifting USA like every month. And, um, you know, Louis Simmons was one of the few people at the time that was like talking about training theory, um, uh, which, I mean, we've really moved on from, uh, quite, you know, almost completely in the, the raw IPF world. Um, oh man. <laughs> But I, I got, but still, you know, like that, that was like a lot of my early education actually came from a lot of those yeah. places. Yeah, and I think that parallels probably a lot of the got the senior folks. Who, and I, I'm not calling you senior. <laughs> we're the same. We're, well, we're the same age. Yeah. You know? So it's yeah. like, uh, but but people who've been around the sport for a while. Yeah. I mean, if, if you think about the people who probably came along like just before us, the only thing they knew from a pro or and maybe even know from a programming theory standpoint is Westside Louis stuff from deep squatter because that's all there was. Yeah. And so if you had been doing that for years and years and years, and then all of a sudden all these the new, new people are saying all this <laughs> weird stuff, they're like, no, that, I mean, it's anyway, that's a, that's a whole nother podcast, but yeah. yeah, it is interesting that at the time, you know, you couldn't really find, there wasn't as much information. And now there's all this stuff. So the, the question that I have for you is it's, you know, it's 2008, maybe into 2009, you're the senior co you're the se most senior person at your, college, uh, coaching the powerlifting team and now coaching folks remotely. When did you start using RPE? That would have been, uh, gosh, prior to that, I would have started doing that in 2005, 2006. So where I, where I got it from, uh, and, and I, I never claimed to invent it because it's not, it's not mine to invent. Um, so 2005, 2006 timeframe, uh, what books do you read on training? Well, you read super training because that's the thing that everybody <laughs> says that you ought yeah. to read, right? Like this is the yeah. seminal work on all training things. Never mind that it's impenetrable and, 
uh, it's not applicable. And, you know, it's, uh, it leaves a lot to be desired. There's good information in it, but it also leaves a lot to be desired. Anyway, sure. through going through super training, uh, like a good, like a good young man, um, I came across this concept of RPE, right? And it comes sure. from endurance. It comes from endurance sports. Um, yeah. and originally yeah. it's, it's the Borg scale is a six to 20 scale, which is really rather unwieldy, but like, Hey, on a scale of six to 20, how hard was that? Like, well, well hold on. You know, it was supposed to match up to heart rate, you know? Right. You multiply it by 10 and that would give you a proxy for what your heart rate is. So you could use it for your heart rate training zone. Yeah. Like sort of stuff. Cause that was the, that's what you did at the time for either endurance or cardiac rehab or like, you know, aerobic exercise nonetheless. Right. So I, I thought, yeah. well, that's, that's a neat concept. Right. And also at the time, uh, you know, so elite FTS, uh, is probably the best place to get, uh, training information online at the time. And Jim Wendler is writing a lot. And I remember at the time he was writing a lot about, uh, leaving a rep in the tank. Uh, that was the thing, right? Like, yeah, you always leave a rep in the tank. Uh, don't train a failure all the time. And it's like, well, it's not rocket science to see how these two concepts can, can mesh together. Okay. So if you have an RPE scale, that's kind of a rating of difficulty. And then if you're thinking about it in terms of leaving a rep in the tank, like how would that look? And so that's kind of where, like I made that RPE chart that says, you know, well, 10 RPE is a maximum effort, no reps in the tank. And nine RPE is one rep less than the tank. Like that's, that's what I did. And so I started using that, uh, with my lifters, 2005, 2006 timeframe, and it was working really well, you know? And so I started writing about it. My original idea was like, Hey, maybe we'll get this published in powerlifting USA, right? As, as like this article <laughs> series, you know? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, right. If you, if you wanted to publish something that is read less, frequently less and less uh uh voraciously than academic journals you would pick powerlifting, <laughs> powerlifting usa or, uh, because yeah you know you start throwing all these numbers around and and, and 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 using something besides just weight on the bar like just absolute load i think you get sometimes you get some pushback from people who are like you just wait, no, that, that does what, you know, uh, if you, you percentages, even that sometimes is a little unwieldy right. that way, but especially, and again, I just think about the time where you were using this, that uh, was so novel. So, uh, okay. So you came up with this, you're using it. Um, the initial response that people have, and you said, yeah, hey, we're going to use this, like this linear scale to rate, the weight on the bar or did you describe it differently than that? Or how did you kind of sell this to the folks that you were, you were coaching? Well, for those guys, I mean, they didn't, they didn't push back against it. They didn't care. You know, I mean, I was the most senior guy, the strongest one on the team. So yeah, they, they trusted me implicitly, which is, you know, definitely a nice thing to have in coach. Um, you know, as time went on, uh, I was keeping a training log on, on some forum somewhere and, you know, kind of built up a following that way. I don't know. It, it probably no one, it probably didn't have enough visibility to have any pushback until much later. 
you know. I see. Till after you had uh, like almost like a critical mass, right? You were actually a thing, right? And then people were like, "Wait, wait, wait! What is this RPE stuff?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow. pretty much. Yeah. So like, and, if you didn't and, like it, then you just wouldn't pay attention. And but to your knowledge, nobody else was using it in powerlifting. No. Or or resist. What about resistance training in general? Like, did you get any emails or I guess certified letters from people <laughs> at the time? Like, hey, we've actually been using this and. In, in Sweden, I imagine Detmar Wolf like sent you a letter saying, "Hey, actually, we've been using this." Actually, no, I've never heard of anybody who uh, claims uh, an earlier date than me, uh, or, or even honestly, an independent uh, arrival at the same conclusion. So um, now, watch now. Now they'll start coming in. But <laughs> but right, yeah. Uh, you know, Gunnar Borg's still alive. I imagine that he he's 90. So I imagine he's maybe penning you a letter saying, hey, uh, actually, I, I, would, I was using this. I would frame that and keep it my chest forever. <laughs> yeah, as, as you should, as you should. Uh, okay, so you're, you're the first person using it. This is mid, middle 2000s, and then, you know, it's getting bigger and bigger as your company's growing as well into, you know, 2009, 2010, and, and you're obviously becoming more visible due to, the performance on the platform that, it, you know, yeah. kicking ass. Uh, do you, do you have any feelings or thoughts or just general commentary about how the use of RPE has, I mean, at least in my estimation has exploded. I mean, there are coaches and I, I, we can, I can use scare quotes, say coaches uh, that are using RPE all over the place. Um, right, right or wrong. Do you have any thoughts on, on kind of the popularity? Are you, are you pro other folks using RPE? Are you do you have do you have any mixed feelings about it? I'm just curious. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much. I'd say I'm like eighty or ninety percent pro. Um, so my my thoughts on this are that you know RPE is like a fundamental training metric. You know, it's not a it's not a methodology. It's not a training system. It's it's a metric. It's like counting how much weight's on the bar or knowing how many reps you did. Like, it's just a measure of the difficulty of, of a working set. That's it. Right. Well, you know, it's always there. Right. It never is not there. You just may not record it. Right. It's just how much are you, how much attention are you going to pay to it? And are you going to base any training decisions off of it? And from there, there's so many different ways that you could base training decisions, you know? So like, uh, one way, Really, the the first way that I did it and the way that I still teach it is kind of this uh, auto-regulated way of doing it. You know, so I send you to the gym and ask you to do a triple at a nine RPE, and then as you're working up, you're taking stock of your performance and you're adjusting the target weight up or down based on your performance that day. So on a good day, you go a little bit heavier. On a bad day, you go a little bit lighter. Trying to hit that three reps at a at a nine RPE. That's that's one way to do it. Another way to do it would be to just work up and hit a target weight and record whatever the RPE is and then adjust the weight for the next week. You know, it's it's kind of a halfway uh, to that. So maybe it's good for people who aren't quite as certain about their uh, RPE ratings or they're, you know, more emotionally driven or they're, you know, kind of get too caught up in the moment. There's a, a bunch of different reasons why you may want to go that route. You know, so there's a bunch of different ways that you can use it. It's just, it's just a metric, you know? Yeah. 
So you, yeah, so you use it both or, or either, well, yeah. I guess either or both descriptively, mm -hmm. like, hey, go, go work up to this RPE. So you're, you're waiting for that description of the R3 reps at RPE nine to occur before you say that's the correct stress that we're shooting for, uh, or the correct target that we're shooting for on this workout, or just descriptively like do a triple at 500 pounds. You know, we're basing that on previous training data and then record the RPE and just try to. Uh, I mean, is the goal to always switch to the sort of prescriptive methodology there? Uh, or are you kind of flexible in how you use it just based on the lifter themselves? Definitely flexible. Uh, some people just don't like it. But, you know, then there are some. So if it's a tool, all tools have strengths and weaknesses. They're good at doing some things, but not others. Uh, so one weakness of RPE is that it, as the RPE gets lower, it's more difficult to use it accurately. So like if sure. you, if you, more granular. yeah, like if you hit a 10 RPE and you crack a filling finish in that rep, you know, you know that that's it. There, that's the limit, you know, a nine RPE is pretty obvious as you get lower on the scale, it becomes harder to make a distinction. Well, was that a six or a seven, you know, things like that. Now, usually it doesn't matter that much, you know, like the consequences of being wrong at, you know, six versus six and a half RPE are not that big. So what I'll do in cases like that is like, well, let's use a percentage. Uh, if we're a little bit off, then who cares? We can, you know, so we're a little bit off. You know, we were going to be a little bit off anyway, probably. Uh, so let's just put a weight on the bar and move on. Um, where the consequences are, are bigger, you know, then you may want to reach for a different tool. Right, right. Yeah, and I think... You know, a lot of, uh, I mean, we've worked together now. Well, it's been some time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I've seen multiple different iterations mm -hmm. of using RPE to, I mean, again, ultimately the goal is to select uh, or to generate the correct stress for the lifter within the context of the program. So, I mean, if, if you thought there was a better method, you'd, you'd be using it. But uh, I, I note that when the volume or when the intensity go is lower than where you would see an RP eight or nine for a particular rep range. So let's say we're wanting to do sets of like four to six, um, at like what you would consider an RP six and a half or seven or even seven and a half. I mean, that's pretty far away from an RP nine or 10, which are both like much easier to judge. Yeah. Then you'll use another set, like a single at RP eight, which again is, is more clear to the lifter in, in most cases, yeah. and then do a, percentage drop because you kind of get to uh not only do you get to practice singles which is good for a competitive lifter uh but also you get a more uh accurate sort of metric yeah um, yeah it's a good metric of progress you know it's a uh, so i kind of come to term those as benchmarking sets and sure. for competitive lifters i like to benchmark singles uh but you know i'll definitely benchmark triples or fives depending on the situation and you can do a variety of different things uh, but you know, I think that your the year Wichita falls, you have to say five. <laughs> I think it's the you have to say it, uh, local right, we'll, local we'll statute, right? <laughs> right, 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 exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, you'll sometimes do a triple at nine, or a five at nine, or five at eight, or three at eight, and then take you know a percentage drop from there in, in order to kind of get down mm -hmm. um, into the average intensity range that you want to work for most of the volume. Um, which, which brings up, a, I, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, just kind of, uh, we just finished a three part 
programming series about discussing a lot of the scientific literature and our sort of coaching biases on using submaximal intensity to drive progress and strength athlete. And the idea, you know, you and I have talked about this, it comes from this polarized training concept where you would accrue volume at a submaximal intensity, um, you know, maybe like 70 to 80% or something like that, you know, with the, with the error bar on each side of that. Uh, and it would be hard to program that just explicitly on RPEs, you yeah. know, if you're working in the, you know, one to six rep range, because even a six at eight is like 80%, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so that's, you're just, you're far enough away from a, a maximal performance that it's quite, RP is quite granular. So you have to use a benchmark set. Anyway. Right. Um, it, do you, I guess, uh, you know, we talked about this for the first time. I think it might've been 2015, just kind of, you know, using this polarized training concept uh, with the submaximal intensities at higher volumes. Have you had any thoughts on, on, the efficacy of that approach versus a more, you know, classical, like let's yeah. just go heavier, less volume. Well, you know, if there's one thing that I've learned, I guess it's been a couple years now. If there's one thing I've learned over the last couple of years is just how different individuals respond to training. I mean, it's, sure. it's really blown my mind. Uh, how, like how, varied individual response can be because I'll, I'll get a lifter who, uh, you know, just doesn't respond to high intensity work, you know? So why would you spend the last two months leading into a competition doing something that this person gets a bad result from, you know? So like that doesn't make any sense. So just the only reason why you would do that is because that's the normal way to do it. You know, and if you do it a different way and it didn't work, then people might say that you're dumb, you know, right, just conve <laughs> but, convention. Yeah. But that's not right. Yeah, that's and that's not a good that's not a yeah. good reason. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I've So just a quick story. Uh, I had a lifter I was working with um, who every time I worked with him for a few years and, and things were going well, he was progressing. And then when it would get to be competition time. Uh, his results would kind of fizzle. Uh, sometimes he would get hurt. You know, we were seeing a bit of progress, you know, over the long term, uh, but it was never quite bang, like on competition day, yeah, like we I'm wanted right it to here. be, you know. No, so for for him, it was, uh, we started doing uh, this thing of, of termed emerging strategies. Um, but one thing I learned from that is that, Oh, it's the high intensity stuff. It's, it's specifically that things go great. And then we reach for high intensity and then things go not great. So let's stop doing that. So I sent him into a competition. He, he didn't handle anything heavier than, uh, six reps at a nine RPE, which is like 80 to 85%. And, came in and, and, uh, smashed like a 50 pound PR, you know, uh, just had a, just had a really great day. I mean, attempt selection was a bit of an adventure. So in future, uh, future training blocks, we had to tweak things a little bit to solve some practical problems. But I mean, it just kind of went to show like, Hey man, like if you just 
take note of the things that the athlete's responding well to and do that, then, you know, for some people, that's high intensity stuff. For other people, it's low intensity stuff. Maybe it's a, a certain exercise or set of exercises, you know. Um, yeah, figuring that out has been, you know, so like to go back to your original question about the polarized stuff, like, yeah, I think it's great uh, for some people. And I, I, when I say it like that, it's like, uh, oh, (laughs) yeah, you know, but it it also kind of sounds like, oh, well, you know, there's 10 people that that might work well for. No, I mean, it it might be a lot of people. Um, It might be you. It might not be you. You know, it's like you've got to you've got to look and figure it out. I I think and I think that's kind of where exercise science and and just everything that we know about average training responses comes in really handy because that gives you a great starting point. It gives you a direction on what to try next and what stones to look under, you know? Yeah. I I mean, that's, we harped on that quite a bit. The inter-individual differences in response to a given training stress that it is not uniform and that, you know, there's a wide spectrum of responses that are, you know, are going to be seen when you, when you get a sample size that is actually representative of the yeah. population that you're discussing. I mean, so, so you'll have people who are hyper, you know, hyper responders and you'll have people that are, you know, they look like duds. They're, you know, what you would term yeah. non-responders or poor responders. And uh, so I, I actually kind of coined this, this uh, idea as like a, a training sensitivity spectrum. And the, the idea is that it, the more training sensitive you are, for a given dose of stress, the more you respond. And then uh, the more training resistant you are, the more, the bigger dose you need to get that same response or maybe even a smaller response. Although, you know, the stress is not going to be the same. You're not going to keep applying just more of the same stress. The stress might actually change uh, in in the nature of how you're applying it. Yeah. Um, Intensity, volume, frequency, things of that nature. You know, I, I wish I could remember more about the specific study, but Greg uh, Knuckles uh, talks about a study that he came across at one at one time that um, they took the study participants and and ran them through a, a range of different uh, exercise protocols and tested their acute testosterone response to those protocols, and then uh, had them do. Uh, I'm obviously going to mess up a bunch of details on this, but had them do uh, one experiment where they uh, ran the protocol where they had the highest testosterone response and another uh, experiment where they did the uh, protocol where they had the lowest uh, testosterone response. And it seemed like doing the protocol where they had the highest testosterone response produced the best effect. Uh, regardless of what the protocol was. And they had some pretty whack protocols, uh, like things that you would look at and go, well, that's not going to build any strength, right. you know? Well, if you had a, a, a good acute testosterone response to that protocol, then apparently it did. Uh, whereas, you know, if you had a poor response to uh, something that was, you know, more traditionally a strength building program, then it didn't do anything for you, you know? Right. So, you know, it, and, Okay, so it's one study and, and it doesn't prove all that much, but it raises a lot of really interesting questions and it, yes. it highlights a concept 
of just how varied the response can be. Like you could be a non-responder to one thing, but a, a great responder to something else. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think, I think that, yeah, the, the, you know, you see a study like that and the simple conclusion is say, well, I just need to find the type of training that maximizes my testosterone response. Whereas the more nuanced sort of, (laughs) (laughs) I'm like a meme of myself now, Uh, (laughs) the more nuanced take on it, it, you know, is like, well, there is something unique about the uh, response of individuals to a certain training stress that that may be manifested by an increased testosterone response, despite the protocol being funky, you know, so, uh, or, or, um, there may be something um, within the protocol itself that is, that we're overlooking by just looking at the testosterone levels. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it, the research pouring over the research has been enlightening. Um, and, and I think, I think the people who were rejecting just exercise science as a whole, you know, and say, ah, we're not looking at that because it's all bullshit. I think <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a, a fatal error because yeah. you, you, you don't get to ask the right questions then. You know, you, and, yeah. and you, you don't get the right insights. And, and as you alluded to, the general sort of responses to training or like the average responses to certain training variables, that's that stuff is super important for developing baseline. Like, OK, here's where I would here's a program or, or programming variables that I would expect to work well in just to get anybody. Uh, and then and then you base your empirical sort of. Uh, uh, programming off, off how a person responds. I mean, yeah. if you, but if you don't have that background, you're like, what are you starting from? Just conventional wisdom, really. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, there's, there's a, an intelligent case to be made for, uh, you know, just the limits of, of human knowledge, the limits of scientific knowledge. Uh, I got into a really interesting discussion uh, with Jacob Sipkin about this on, on my podcast. And we kind of <laughs> talked for a long time about, you know, what's knowable, uh, and then what's kind of beyond that. Now there are some limits, but that doesn't negate the fact that, you know, it, this is kind of the best picture that we've got, you know, uh, it, it, it's, you're, you're absolutely right. Like to go, to throw that whole thing out is to say, well, I guess we'll go back to colloquial wisdom, you know, like, well, how do you get rid of a wart? Well, you rub a potato on it and bury it under a full moon. Like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know? Willow bark for everything else, potatoes right. for anything that Willow bark doesn't touch. That's the, uh, right. That's Pliny the Elder. That's his, that's his, uh, his, his roadmap for uh, emergency medicine in the field. There you uh, go. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, the cool thing is, uh, so you have guys like, uh, like Eric Helms and Mike Zordos, uh, two very, very smart folks actually doing research on powerlifting training, strength training, and particularly how RPE, uh, or reps and reserve can, uh-huh. can be applied in certain periodization models and, and a whole bunch of cool stuff. I mean, if you wanted more specific stuff, I, I don't know where you would go because they're the ones doing it. Uh, yeah. do they like call you up and say, Hey man, Mike, we're going to use like this RPE thing, like, do you, do you want to run over our, our like study methods? Did they, uh, they consult you first or no? <laughs> uh, Eric did actually. Um, we talked, gosh, that would have been like 2010 or so. Uh, and he was, he, I put on a seminar in Australia and, uh, he came to it and we were talking and he was telling me that, 
you know, he was going to do his PhD and he was talking to me about what he wanted to do his PhD on. And heck, I thought it was really cool, you know? And now, I mean, that's pretty far outside of my domain. So like I could tell him, you know, well, I wouldn't really use it that way or something like that. And, and I hope, I think that that helped to make it applicable, you know, but I mean, as far as like, uh, actually doing the thing, uh, that's obviously all them, but yeah, Eric Helms is a really cool dude, really fun to talk to. Um, really smart guy. And, and Mike Zoros has been a friend of mine for a, a long time now too. Um, yeah, both of those guys are, are really sharp dudes. Um, like they, they get it. Like they're not just, you know, some lab coats or something like that. Like they, they compete and they coach too. Yep. So it's not like they're like super removed and they just don't get it or something like that. Like there are concessions that have to be made in order to make research research, you know? Sure. Um, but you know, for the most part, they, they're striking a balance and I think they're doing a, a good job of, of doing a thing, but making it applicable as applicable to coaches and lifters as possible. You know, I, they're definitely making the effort. Yeah. It's been very informative just reading their stuff and like how reliable people's self-rated RPEs or reps and reserve are in different settings and or different levels of training. And, uh, I think, you know, and even in different populations that aren't like competitive lifters, I mean, there's stuff yeah. on older, you know, community dwelling adults yeah. <laughs> being able to use reps and reserve, you know, fairly, fairly well, uh, particularly when looking at the effects that they're, the outcomes well, that, that they're having. That's a, that's a common complaint, you know, whenever we get into debates on whether or not it's, it's worth keeping track of or not. Oh yeah, but... let's do it. Let's do it. Let's go there. <laughs> well, like, well, you can't use it accurately. Like, well, you don't need to take it out to three decimal places or anything like that. And if, if you're not perfectly accurate in your rating of RPE, I don't think that's a, a to use your term, a fatal error. Like, I think, okay, that's a little bit less than ideal, but that doesn't destroy the whole methodology, you know? Uh, it doesn't make the metric useless. It's worth keeping track of. And it's also uh, a skill. You get better at it the more you practice it. Yeah, 100%. And, and, well, yeah. and the, the, the probably one of the uh, a more important thing, uh, you know, is a metric that's always going to be there regardless whether you want to track it <laughs> explicitly right. or not. And, right. and it's always going to affect your training management that day again, whether you're explicitly using it or not. So if you go into the gym and your go-to, you know, management for either your training or a train, another trainee's training uh, is to just add five pounds to the barbell. Well, okay. If during their warmups, their second to last warmup looks like a, you know, bone on bone grinder. Oh, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> well, you're probably going to make some changes on the fly, you know, yeah. and you don't have to call that RPE. But that's certainly subjective feedback based on factors that you're assessing in real time. Uh, yeah. and, and, and you're the coach who's got or, or the person with the knowledge who, who's making that decision. If you are communicating that by wire, you know, or over over email, I think you have to have a metric that is available that ha that is going to influence training management 
uh, that is uh, uh, malleable or is adjustable. You know, if yeah. you say you can only do this weight and that's it, well, that's not going to work for very long. You know? Right. Yeah. I mean, and at least at those those higher levels of difficulty where the the consequences of, of being wrong are more serious. You know, and it's important to note that this is something that like all coaches and all sports have done forever since the beginning of time, you know, it's just it maybe hasn't been codified in, in a specific, uh, numerical fashion, but, you know, coaches forever have been, you know, you, you watch a lifter and you say, ah, why don't you take 10 pounds off the bar and do it right? You know, right, right. so just stuff like that. That's not new, no, <laughs> you know, right, right. that's just good coaching. Sure. But if you have a system that's actually laid out in a way where you can make right. more intelligent decisions, then oh, should it be 10 pounds? You're like, if you say, ah, that looked like a nine, like an RPE nine, because I think that you had one rep left in the tank right. or, or the technique error was so significant that I'm going to yeah. actually rate it a couple points higher. And so then you think, well, if I take 10% off the bar, I should drop this by two RPE. And that's really what we're shooting for ish today. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's elegant. Exactly. So. Exactly. That's it's it's a you gain some advantages, I think, by taking an approach like that. Like training partners forever have done sets and they get under out from under the bar and they go, Oh, that felt heavy or man, I smoked it. Like, okay, great, but what does that mean? Okay. You know, if if you tell me that felt heavy, I don't really know what you mean by that. But if you tell me that was a nine RPE, then I have a, a fairly good idea of what that means. So it gives us a, a language for more precise communication. Sure. You know? it, it, yeah. Even more, I would argue than absolute weight, absolute intensity, because if you said it was 500, you're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, that tells you nothing, right? <laughs> I'd also like to point out that there is a website called that's not heavy.com. Uh, but to my knowledge, there is no website called that is heavy. Dot com. So that's, <laughs> there's another thing there. Um, a, little, a little opportunity out there for somebody. Yeah, just, just saying, just saying. Uh, so what are all the factors that you use with both your own, in both your own training and then your client's training to rate RPE? Um, you know, people always, they get in, you know, intense internet battles about, well, that doesn't, that shouldn't affect your RPE or that doesn't, you know, that's not classically how we use RPE. Like what, what is, what does the master use? <laughs> I imagine you're like, you're like master splinter now, you know, you just. <laughs> old and crippled. <laughs> well, again, we're the same age. So it's like, you know, if you're old then I guess that's well. Oh, yeah. No, I, I know. Right. But, um, I don't know whether it'd be happy or sad that you asked this question because uh, on one hand, like I like talking about stuff and, and new stuff, but uh, on the other hand, uh, I, I worry, you know, so like there's the classic RPE chart and that's my go-to, you know, 90% of the time. Um, but like we mentioned before using benchmark singles, um, I gauge those a little bit differently. Uh, the way I think of it, um, like to reps and reserve, like that type of scale doesn't make as much sense in my head. Uh, I, now if it makes sense in your head, then can, by all means continue to do that. But uh, a different sort of descriptive label that I've put on the numbers, uh, for that is, uh, you know, based on how it would be in a powerlifting competition. So if you did, uh, a rep a single and it looked 
it moves how you would expect an opener to move, then I would call that a seven and a half RPE. You know, if it, if I look at it and I go, well, that was a little bit too heavy to be an opener, you know, then that's probably an eight RPE, you know, and, and so on from there. So I've kind of got a scale like that that I use for singles. Um, it gets a little bit fuzzy if you're going to really high reps, you know, probably 15 or 20 reps. Like if you're doing a 20 rep set, you know, the granularity of having one rep in the tank versus two or three is, it's a lot harder to, to nail that stuff down. So it gets a little bit fuzzier, uh, kind of out there on those peripheries, I, I would say. Um, you know, I, for me in my own training, uh, I use, uh, velocity uh so i have an open barbell that i take to the gym with me and so I have velocity measurement so I, I i start with the subjective rpe of whatever that was you know and then i may tweak it a little bit based on velocity or video right. feedback so, or something so like those that are just extra and then, data points that you will yeah you may modify but the initial right. assessment is you know more or less what did that feel like compared and depending on if yeah. it's a single well that you have a powerlifting specific sort of scale there and if it's reps then there's a, a more reps and reserve-esque kind of rate rating there and then you look yeah. at video and you may have bar speed which which is interesting i, I won't spend too long cutting you off i promise <laughs> no no well, you have no, your, just, well, you have your own <laughs> i mean you have table like charts for the lifts that you do with a bunch of mm -hmm. historical data that is effectively correlated to rpe mm -hmm. so you know that if you're doing a set of four at nine on deadlift that the bar velocity is going to be, you know, 0.24 meters per second or some, some number. Right. And so then you see, when you see that on the, on the digital readout, you're like, okay, that confirms that, you know, that that felt like a four nine, or if you actually, your brain said, Oh, that's a seven. I, I got it today. I'm killing it. And then you see the velocity. You're like, eh, well, maybe it was an eight, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe it's a right. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, it it more often than not agrees with your subjective rating, you know, assuming that everything's calibrated correctly. But it's a good way to uh, kind of have that link to past performances. You know, I, I don't think velocity is everything uh, when it comes to RPE rating. I think velocity is maybe like 80% of your RPE. You know, like there's uh, other little factors that kind of play into it you know, technical things, uh, oxygen, you know, stuff like that. Um, <laughs> right. you know, important well, things. Well, <laughs> story, I mean, you guys got like Russ Orhe, for instance, you know, the 83 kilo phenom will move, will move his third attempt squat. Yeah. Like what I would rate an RP seven. I'm like, Oh dude, this guy's got 30 kilos left in the tank, you know, or something like that. Uh, but then you see him go up for like right. a fourth, uh, if he, you know, for a record attempt or something and it's two and a half kilos more and it just staples him, and you're like, yeah, well, He's different than, yeah. than I am on many levels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, you know, there's a, uh, uh, gosh, why am I blanking on this guy's name right now? Uh, that's going to, that's going to be embarrassing. One of your, one of <laughs> but, uh, no, he's not one of my lifters. He's a, a British lifter, uh, famous for Tom. grinding out reps. Like you look at his opener, you're <laughs> like, right. he's, Oh he's my God. Dead. You know, <laughs> yeah. It, but but he'll go up, you know, he'll go up on a second attempt and it looks just the same. He'll go up again on his third and he'll get it, you know, and you will. 
wow. Right. I was right. If you're competing against him, you're like, oh, I got this you guy. Know? He's just going to get his opener. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's, it's 100% like got to be scaled to the, to the individual lift uh, yeah. and your capabilities. So there, you're using you know? a couple extra things to kind of modify or, or, or uh, your subjective rating. Um, and I mean, I yeah. assume that you haven't come up with this multi-variable equation where you actually plot these. You're like, oh, I'm going to rate this as an eight. The bar velocity correlates this well with it. And then the video, you have some other scale and you plot an <laughs> equation. Yeah. So I assume you don't have that. But um, yeah, well. if, <laughs> you're like, actually, uh, uh, fancy algorithm. Uh, right. <laughs> no, I, I like to nerd out over training stuff. Um, but, you know, at, at some point we've got to keep it usable yeah, <laughs> in the yeah, in the yeah. weight room right yeah now, look, and cameras speak they talk about form factor right like the size of the camera and then how that affects usability portability and like all sorts of you know yeah. where you can actually use it so at some point you have uh so many tools or in the camera you have so many things stacked on it that the form factor is like oh my god i can't even use this thing anymore so right. I, I mean that's actually how i used open barbell for probably a year straight and I had a bunch of data on it. And uh, I found for myself that during warmups on things that I would rate like a seven or an eight, that I would get feedback. And sometimes it would be very useful for me as far as like, you know, predicting what I should go up to the next for the next set. Um, and that would, you know, as I correlated that with my own subjective RPE. But then other times it was almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, like, like, uh, uh, you know, I, I, maybe I had volitionally moved the last rep slower and that dropped my average velocity for the, for the set. And so then I kind of, uh, cut, you know, five or 10 pounds off my top set, for instance. Um, and, and people will say, see, see RPE, that's bullshit, right? Cause it, you know, five or 10 pounds lighter than what you should have done. But the beauty is that really doesn't matter. The, that five or 10, it's like, eh, well, we're training, you know, we're just, we're trying right. to get a bunch of stress and one set at, at levels like post novice does not make or break your training a single, right. you know, unless it's at a meet and the set is a single and there's a lot of money <laughs> on the line or there's a pretty girl in the audience. I mean, I, you know, that's the only time where the, that level of accuracy really, really matters in, in my estimation. I mean, you could disagree with me, but I, I don't know if you have a, no, I, I, I think you're right on that. I mean, it's a good point that uh, if you want your training to be effective, uh, you should have effective training. You know, like it, it, if you want to get stronger, then you that should somehow manifest in your training. Like if you're continually using lighter and lighter weights in training, that's probably not a good thing. That's the linear regression program. That's, <laughs> right. That's my right. new book. It's called Ending Strength. And you just take five pounds off every week until you die. That's just the, yes. it's when you turn fifty. Let me know. I will send you the. I'll send you the ebook. Right. Right. Yeah. You can you can project out how long you've got left. Right. 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 Based on your one RM, estimate a one RM yeah. at fifty. There you go. Yeah. Um. But yeah, you know, so one session. It's like you said, it's, that's going to happen anyway. So if let's say, let's say that we're working at uh five rep max weights, right? Yeah. And you're go, you go in there and you're warming up and you're like, Hey, uh, this isn't going to happen today. So I'm going to take 10 pounds off the bar and you do that set. And it's still like this bone grinding, you know, set 
you know, definitely a five rep max set. It's 10 pounds lighter than you thought it was going to be, but it's still a 10 rep max. What would have happened if you had had that extra 10 pounds on there? Well, you would have missed. Yeah. You know, you'd have died. died. You'd be dead. (laughs) Right. Actually, (laughs) (laughs) so that that's not the training program. Like, that's not what you're trying to accomplish either. You know, so like your strength capacity is down that day, you know, whether you care to admit it or not. Like, that's just the way it is. Yeah. Um, Yeah. yeah. So obviously an effective training program is going to have few of those days uh, and you want as few of those days as possible. But when they happen, they definitely happen and you can either acknowledge them or not. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, in that case, even when you take 10 pounds off and even it's still, you kind of overshoot Um, a point to be made is that's a better situation than failing the second rep Um, from, from literally every factor that's going to go into generating a a productive adaptation later on down the line, psychologically, physiologically. Follow me on this for for a second. And, and I know that we can kind of pick this example apart and, and really get bogged down in the weeds if we if we wanted to. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to go there if you or anybody else wants to. But one concept that uh, that I use when I'm developing training is uh, stress index. It's it's an attempt to quantify the recovery cost of uh, of a workout you know, or, or whatever, whatever it is, you know, now training stress comes primarily, uh, from two places. It comes from the volume of work that you're doing and the psychological arousal that goes into the, the set. I, I think those, those, it's not only those two places, but I think that's the two primary places. Like the training volume that you do contributes to actual breakdown of tissue, things that need to be repaired. Uh, there's a recovery cost to that. I think the psychological arousal that you bring into a set is what contributes to that mental fatigue, the, the mental recovery that needs to happen, uh, post training, right? One way that you can approximate, uh, the psychological arousal, I think is through an RPE assessment. If you're going to do a set and you know that the set is just going to take you know, it's going to take some years off your life, man. Like this is going to be a hard set. You know, you can't help but get a little bit nervous, get a little bit anxious about it. You get a little more psyched up without even trying. Sure. It's, got, and, it's a natural reaction based on yeah. your nervous system. Sure. Yeah. It, human stress response, right? Now, on the other end of that, if you're doing a warm up set, uh, say you're doing some speed work and, and you're like really trying to go nuts over the speed work, like, in the back of your mind, you know that like, well, look, this is really not, this is 50%. Like, isn't really not that big a deal. Like right. you can't trick yourself. Uh, I mean, without going to some pretty absurd lengths, you know, you're not going to trick yourself. So I think that you can use RPE to kind of approximate that. Now, if you, if you are with me so far, uh, and you have, you send somebody to the gym and the workout is designed to, for them to do, you know, five reps at a, a nine RPE. Uh, and they do five reps at a 10 RPE, that's more stress than what you'd plan for. Now, that's not a, a game ender right there, sure. you know, one set being off by a little bit. But, you know, if you're chronically doing 
uh, if you're chronically working at levels that the program was not designed for, that's going to cause a problem. Sure. You know, take something like a, a Shaco program that most, almost all of the sets that are in this program are designed to be done at a very low RPE. And you said, well, screw that. That's too easy. I'm going to really crank it up and, and every set's going to be a 3RM. Well, of course you're going to die. You know, like that's <laughs> <laughs> actually, again, actually dead. <laughs> These ones go to 11. You're actually going to die. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. But yeah. So you want to get it right. You want, I think a well-designed program accounts for these things, whether it accounts for it by name or not is unimportant. It accounts for and properly prescribes stress for the lifter. And sure. I think that's kind of how, if you wanted to calculate it, that's how you would calculate it. Yeah. You would come up with a, a, a an equation that, that took into uh, that, that gave you an output for psychological, the psychological index, which would be an RPE and then perhaps uh, relative intensity, uh, and maybe an additional, maybe some other factor where, where a lifter could rate, you know, how hyped they right. had to get, uh, you know, which would be. Uh, well, honestly, so really venturing off into nerd territory here, which is, We're going. yeah, I, I think this is fun, right? <laughs> so, uh, like I mentioned stress index, that's what I, so what I did is I've got a coefficient for each RPE level and you just sum the coefficients for each set. You know, oh, okay. it's kind sure. of, it's kind of a way of counting how many hard sets you did. It's, it's something like that. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. That's reasonable. Uh, I mean, yeah. we're trying to use fatigue like this, 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 the yeah, this, fatigue percent. Yeah. Right. Which is, you know, I mean, yeah, I think we've all been trying to do the same thing since realizing that like, the application of the correct amount of stress over time is what we're trying to do. Uh, so, and then the abs, the, that stress has multiple inputs into it and it's not just taking weight off the bar, putting weight on the bar or, you know, less reps. There's a multiple things and you have to have something that's not just volume or tonnage. There's other, yeah. other things. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with Robert Frederick, uh, but mm -hmm. he's got a, a, concept that he's written about called exertion load and it's it's very similar it actually maps rather nicely to the stress index con uh, concept but uh his concept is like take take something like a 10 rm uh the first rep that you do is not as stressful as the last rep that you do um so he's got an equation that he, that he developed that accounts for um you know, how difficult is the set essentially? So uh, something like RPE, uh, although I think he's using velocity, uh, he's accounting for the intensity. Uh, so the weight on the bar, you know, so deadlifts would produce a higher stress than, you know, overhead press, um, you, you know, and, and some other additional factors uh, beyond what I've done as well. So I, I think that's a super interesting concept. They kind of, they, they match up in like the overall pattern of data. Uh, but he includes a, a couple more factors that I think are interesting in there. Yeah. It's like some, uh, I think if I recall offhand, there's like some actual biological data, like a testosterone to cortisol ratio and like, really? like yeah, like creatine kind. I mean, not that he's actually measuring those things, but like he's, he's saying if you wanted to make proxies for like, uh, like I think the duration of training, he used like creatine kinase or something like that. Or like oh, that's a, interesting. Yeah, but he's not like using that in it 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. Uh, well, uh, in in his case, uh, this will be the last thing I say on in Nerdland for for a minute. But like he even can break it down into uh, central and peripheral stress. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. or it, it, it's not exactly that. It's something like that. You know, when we look at the numbers, we go, that's kind of what we mean by central fatigue. And that's kind of what we mean by peripheral fatigue. Yeah. That explains why people like doing sets of eight for hypertrophy work. That explain, you know, that type of thing. And I don't know, man, that's really interesting to me. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's, I think explaining, yeah, the response, uh, the overall uh, that a given workout would have on, uh, uh, you know, cumulative stress in general. I mean, that's, if we can nail that down, yeah. whoo, we're off yeah. the races. I mean, right. yeah, the, um, it, it's, uh, it's interesting, you know, just, just talking about this stuff, especially the, the stress index, because I think that that actually also maps well. I mean, we talk a lot about pain, um, <laughs> not because we're actively like putting people in pain, but just discussing like how it is more than just this mechanical thing. Like, Oh, you have yeah. a bulging disc or a torn meniscus. Therefore you have back pain or knee pain. Rather, what are your expectations for a given movement and you know what it's going to do to you? Like if you think that it's going to cause you pain, if you are psychologically, you know, manifesting this arousal because you, uh, this is going to hurt it's a stress response, then yeah, it's going to hurt. And if it's, it, it would, would previously be a little bit of pain is now a lot of bit of pain. Um, and I, so I think it's interesting kind of just, using that more of a psychological input there to, to sort of describe the stress index from a given workout or series of workouts. That's, uh, that's pretty cool, Mike, but, but it's not just adding five pounds. So I think that it's probably just bullshit, right? It's the, <laughs> it's probably, if you were going to use the colloquial term. Yeah. But. Well, again, you are that that's a, it's a statute. Of where you're at right now. <laughs> um, yeah, I, Again, I, I, I would agree with you. I'm not going to challenge you to on, you know, oh, well, RP is bad because I obviously like it. I use it in my training. I use it in my clients training. Um, a question that I want to know, is there anybody that you wouldn't use RPE for? You just, oh, you, yeah. Yeah. You, all right. Who wouldn't you use? Who is like, you know what? RPE, not for you. I'm going to put my put my buddy on blast here, I guess. But uh, okay. so back. In my academy days, I had, I had this uh, training partner, a friend of mine. His name was Dane Kelly. And uh, uh, it, RPE is not going to be good for that guy because he he loved psyching up and just kind of going nuts for training. You know, like that was part of who he, who he was, you know. Sure. And and I can't remember if I tried to use it with him or, or not. But like thinking back on like how he approached training from a mental standpoint, I don't think that would fit very well with his style now, right. you know? Sure. So like if I had somebody come to me like that now and, uh, um, you know, you really like to psych up and, and go crazy for training. Like, well, I would try to give them a training prescription that, that works with their personality. You know, RPE requires you to switch between the athlete focused on execution and somewhat of a coach who's uh, like critically analyzing performance, you know? Yeah. If you're not good at making that switch, then maybe I shouldn't ask you to because I don't, I don't think it's essential. You know, like I, I think RPE is a good tool to use. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's effective for regulating training and things like that. But 
if you're just really bad at using, if you're really bad at using a hammer and like every time I gave you a hammer, you're holding it backwards. Maybe I just shouldn't ask you to use the hammer, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think the, an interesting counter, well, not counter, but it, at some point, every lifter who's going to be in this game for a long period of time needs to develop a, a, uh, a certain skill set of, you yeah. know, of, of managing, yeah, managing their training. And I think that they're at, at, at this time, it would be very difficult to, for me to come up with another metric that helps them develop that sort of, yeah, as you put it, yeah. like, you know, their sort of coaching hat, like, oh, well, how was that? And, you know, what should I do about it? Uh, does everyone, well, do you need to do that? That's a fair point too, you right? Can, like I, it's very possible that I'm kind of, wrong or, or well, maybe was... going off half talked about about that specific uh scenario because i mean it does go back to the thing that we've been saying that it's a fundamental metric and i have had a number of lifters who have started out like my buddy dane who are going nuts you know but then over time you're like hey look i need you to rein it in a little bit i need you to to uh adopt a bit of a different attitude and that's important in a different way from more of like a sustainability of training standpoint, you know? So it, I definitely don't think that it's just like, Hey, you think like this, therefore I'm never going to even try this method with you, you know, but if you just kind of over time show an, an unwillingness or a, just kind of a lack of capability, I guess, then it, it might be worth uh, exploring some avenues that are maybe just a little less dependent on it. You know, um, like, look, if the guy's going to push to a 10 RPE all the time anyway, then give him 10 RPEs, let him push to it, you know, and account for that in different ways. Understand that like, at least that way, you know, like if you built the training, uh, kind of going back to that stress index concept, you know, if you built the training design for eight RPEs, you're going to include more sets because you're still trying to create a certain level of stress for that lifter. You know, Oh, well they're going to 10 RPEs. So now they're, now they've got too much stress, you know? Uh, so that's not going to work. You need to build the training um, that's designed to work with that athlete, you know, and it goes the other way too. Like maybe you've got, uh, I've seen plenty of lifters who are kind of high neuroticism lifters or anxious, you know, and they send me a video and like say that this is a nine RPE and you watch them just cruise through the set, you know, and you go, huh? Okay. So you're not accurate with it in a different way, you know? So again, it's not that it's not that the RPE doesn't exist, you know, it's just that we have to look at them and see how they're using it and adjust uh, based on, based on them, based on their real application. Yeah. I mean, I've actually had people where I've had them do, okay, five at 10. Yeah. <laughs> and then take 20% off the bar and do, yeah. you know, you know, six sets of five or four sets of five or right. something. Um, yeah. I, I, the people who I don't use RPE for are, uh, very, very new. If I get the sense or if my gestalt, is that that would actually not make them not train because uh, yeah. they're like, 
I don't know what to do with RP. What? I don't even know what RP is. You know, I, I do think that it's useful for somebody who, I mean, even if they're very green to training, right? Yeah. They're just coming in. I think it's useful for them in a descriptive sense. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, but I'm giving them multiple descriptors too, because I'm just trying to give them the best chance for success. But I want them to sort of develop that this calibration tool early. Exactly. Um, exactly. 100% and, agree. Yeah. yeah. And again, because it doesn't matter if it's five pounds heavier or not, you know, really. Yeah. It really, really doesn't, you know, unless, unless there's money on the line, it's a one RM. Um, I think, I think divorcing that idea that it always has to be heavier to be better. That that's a, a good, a, is a big game changer for people's programming it. And then that kind of opens them to using different tools to help manage their training. But right. yeah, I think, I think, yeah, just the people who, if I give them an RPE prescription, if that makes them close down their web browser and say, <laughs> you know what, I'm just going to take up, you know, right. an underwater you know, basket weaving instead, because that seems like right. a, more, a better task. Yeah, like um, you definitely got to meet people where they are, right? So if they're going to just quit entirely, yeah. then yeah, okay, you're not helping anybody like that. Yeah, but, yeah, it's like a diet thing. It's like a diet thing. They're like, you know what? The only way I'm going to do this is if it's keto. And I'm like, dang it. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Right. But if that, if that's going to give you the best compliance early on, then let's, let's start there. Let's see if I can trick you into doing what I actually want you to do later. Um, when you don't coach people in person anymore at all. No, no. Yeah. I I guess, you know, my question for you was going to be that when you're in person, are you rating people's RPEs or, or getting feedback from them? And then, you know, but, but since you're not doing that, I mean, I mean, I've, I've had a training partner. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, whenever I've, whenever I've trained with people, um, and I'm, I'm coaching them in that sense, uh, it's been roughly the same thing. Like I'll get them to rate, uh, and then I'll take their rating. I'll accept whatever it is that they say, no matter, you know, how much I disagree with it. I, you know, just by rule, like I'll take what they say and then I'll, I'll tweak it, you know, based on video feedback velocity or, my own feedback, you know, if I'm watching them and I think like, oh man, you're, you said eight, but you're really off, you know, then I'll tweak it a little bit, you know, but half a point is kind of my rule of thumb. Like I generally don't go more than that. Yeah. Yeah. If someone says seven and a half and you say eight, you're like, eh, that's probably fine. Yeah. It's the same. Right. Yeah. yeah. Close. Um, it's close enough. Right. 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 Uh, okay. I feel like we've just beaten RPE into the ground. I mean, and again, <laughs> I think I think that to say that it is useless or that nobody can use it or that you shouldn't use it to manage training um, outside of like person who's been training for years and years and years. I think we when you say that you you basically have to you you can't sit at the table. You know? Yeah, I, and you you might have even said that. I may actually be like you know cool quoting you, <laughs> <without even knowing laughs> it. but 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 I, I do think that if you want to discuss programming theory, strength training theory then you have to be open to discussing it. And if you're not, right. then, well, just remove yourself from the discussion. This is not, you can't just say no. Like, it's like that family guy, the, the, the horse or the, the donkey is just no, 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 <laughs> no, no. And then you start, you know, yeah, you can't, that's not, that's not helping anybody. Right. Uh, okay. So I did have, I have three more questions and we'll wrap this. All cool. right. You wrote an article, which I'll link in the show notes, about the pendulum of like exercise variations. That, that might not be the actual title, but the 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 idea was that you know 
earlier on in powerlifting, you know, back in the late 2000s and, and certainly before that exercise variation, it was lauded, you know, people yeah. used a lot of varieties. And then now it's like hyper-specific, just only do squat bench deadlift. That's it. Why would you do anything else? That's stupid. It's not what you're competing in. I mean, you know, then there are people who fall in between, certainly. What are your thoughts about high, ex- uh, you know, the uh, a greater amount of exercise variations um, versus minimal exercise variations. And I'll give you two populations. First population, novices. Second population, uh, competitive powerlifters. Um, and the outcomes that we're looking for are just strength development long-term. Mm, good question. So, like, uh, let's start with novices. Because I go I go back and forth on this a little bit. Like, on, sure. on one end, the, the thing that you're looking for is uh, movement proficiency. You know, um, so I wouldn't do a lot of, I wouldn't do uh, some of the things that I do with other athletes, you know, maybe not, you know, uh, and now I'm struggling to come up with examples of things I wouldn't do with a novice because they all seem to have places of utility, even with novices, honestly, now that I think about it. So you're trying to develop general movement proficiency, right? Well, Let's take the squat, everyone's favorite. So, <laughs> speak for yourself, dude. Right. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's take the squat. So, let's say you're trying to learn basic movement proficiency for the squat. Well, like one school of thought is to just do squats, right? Well, fine. But it turns out when we add small variations to the movement, uh, that's helpful. So, maybe I give you a, a three second eccentric. You know, I tell you, take three seconds to lower the weight on the squat. You know, that additional time gives you a chance to feel what that position is like. You gain a little bit more familiarity with it. Same with pauses, you know, and really to that extent, it goes beyond that. Like I could put chains on the bar and that small variation helps you to feel what the uh, the movement is like, you know, and you may even want to include other things that train those muscles that aren't even squats, like, say, lunges, you know, uh, doing things like that. Uh, while it doesn't improve your movement proficiency squatting, like it's going to build those muscles and that's going to be useful at some point. It's not like squatting is like learning quantum physics and, you know, it's just going to take a lifetime to master, you know, like you're going to get there, you know? So when you do get there, having a little bit more muscle might be useful. So (laughs) (laughs) let's not go out on any limbs here, you know? So, Sure. So in that sense, like even with a novice, I, I guess it depends on like how much of a rush are we in, you know, if we've got the time and, and I think the, the lifter is, can be compliant with that kind of a program, then yeah, I mean, why not? You know, now if you've got a lifter who, who perceives those types of variations as stresses, you know, uh, then that's not good. You know, that then maybe you go a different direction. Maybe you have less variation and more consistent practice because that meshes better with their psychology. You know, um, you're, you're basically making a concession for their psychological biases, not necessarily the optimal training. If you had a blank slate of carbon matter assembled as a human. I mean, I, I, I don't know that you can even separate them. 
you know? Well, yeah, not on some, on some level, no, because, right, because that is affecting the net stress that you're applying to the person. Well, because so, so come back to Nerdland with me. <laughs> okay. All right, let's do it. Um, so there's a, a personality assessment called the Temperament and Character Inventory. And it's not the big five. It's a different, it's a different one. Right. Right. Uh, but it, it does map to the big five. Anyway, read the Wikipedia. <laughs> um, the, so the TCI, uh, has also mapped to resting levels and sensitivities of certain neurotransmitters, dopamine, uh, serotonin, yeah, norepinephrine. There's stuff like that in mood, mood disorder. Yeah. yeah that makes yeah. jobs. Sure. So like we, we, talk about this like oh so so and so is you know neurotic and they're more anxious and stuff like that so i'm going to make a concession to their psychology well there's also physiology here you know well sure yeah you know and yeah, you can't separate the two no, that makes sense yeah so yeah. that's kind of where I, where i come back to with it and, and i don't know how inextricably that is linked you know um yeah i just don't know the answer to that yet I think the you know, I guess um, outside of a a person's nature, the environment by which they're coming to you or coming to any strength coach uh, has an influence on yeah. their expectations and then sort of how that ends up manifesting, which it obviously influences their neurophysiology. So I, I guess. You know, what, what I'm hearing you say when you're describing the novice trainee, is when you're trying to attain movement proficiency and other things that improve long-term outcomes, which mm-hmm. are muscular hypertrophy, <laughs> the neuromuscular sort of proficiency is what we're discussing. We're talking about, you know, movement quality there for the, for the big lifts. Um, I think you and I are in agreement. I would prefer all other things being equal to use a greater base of movement variety, which also comports with the rest of athletic sort of coaching there, theory. There's that too. Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't want to hyper specialize um, early on. You would like to develop multiple similar movement patterns that are contributory and complementary, and have this large base of sort of physical development by which you could draw from for a long career. Now yeah. you you said it eloquently as well, that if you're in a rush, yeah, well, you know, Maybe we do just stick to the, the the regular exercises, and I think a program like starting strength, for instance, is hyper specialized. You know, I don't. It's not bad, and I think I think you're getting a rapid return on training investment, which has its own other set of positives. Yeah, it's easy, relatively easy to follow, although people seem to mess it up <laughs> regardless. I'm sure. I mean, sure, yeah. Well. Uh, and then um, it, it, it probably improves compliance on the certain cohort that's choosing to run it, yeah. which is useful for developing good training habits. Yeah. Um, but is it the best program for training development? I think that's a pretty bold claim. You know, and what are, are we talking about? Like one RMs, like, and when if we're talking about one RMs a year later, I don't know if you could make that claim. You know, I think that that's, there's more, there are more things going into that, that sort of discussion than just, well, you got to do squat bench deadlift press. That's it. I mean, you, you would say if the test doesn't involve a press, why are you pressing? 
And really, if that's the, you know, if the test is three months from your, from day zero training. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a pretty good response on the, uh, for the novice. Now let's say we're talking about a competitive lifter. All right. And we'll give you more context. They do not have a meet coming up in the next six weeks. Uh, so their, their strength development is the, is the ideal goal here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, is your answer the same as far as training variety goes, you know, based on their, you know, uh, uh, psychology and, and their expectations of on training and what it should look like and, and you know, how that yeah. positively or negatively affect yeah, the outcomes? Yeah, we get to do some more cool stuff, though, I think, at that point. Like, there's going to be a bit more of a rich training history that we can draw from, I hope. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, I mean... Man, if people can mess up simple programs, you'd be amazed at what happens to training log, you know, for Dude. for any program. But, um, yeah. but yeah, so hopefully there's a, a bit more information that we can draw from. But yeah, like I I like including a lot of variety, you know. So if I see a certain movement breakdown in squat, then I like to try to prescribe an exercise that rewards them for doing it the right way and punishes them for doing it the wrong way. I think that that's a that's a a really useful way to teach them how to do it the right way. Of course, there's you know standard coaching, cueing, and things like that. Like, well, you've got to you know move your body like this and position yourself like that. That's great, but how much better would it be if I felt it immediately when I did it right, and and that was a good positive feeling that self reinforces, you know? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, so. I, I like doing stuff like that, you know, and I mean, there's a, there's a, a legitimate debate, I think that could be had on, you know, whether doing assistance work like that, uh, makes you stronger in the competitive lifts, um, you know, outside of, uh, improved mechanics, you know, like Im- improvements in your technique, you know, well, I think it does. I really think it does, um, yeah. but I can't prove it. Uh, yeah, I can't really prove it in any way yet. <laughs> oh, you don't have a double blind RCT just lined up, just waiting in the wings. You want to drop on people? You know, I, I would. I would love to do like we do project momentum periodically and stuff like that. But and I would love to do something to try to add some evidence to this, one way or the other. Um, but I can't quite figure out how you would do it with a meaningful sample size. So take like the squat, you know, um, you couldn't just have one group just do squats and the other group do squats and pin squats because pin squats are not going to be the right movement for all of them. Um, we know enough about individual differences that like really it goes back to the specificity and transference, right? The reason that I think people kind of have fallen in love with specificity and we're seeing that pendulum swing back toward the center a little bit. I think one of the reasons is because it is true for most people most of the time that that gets you the best transference. But there's some specific cases where I've seen people's training logs over a long enough period of time to to be able to say, well, look, in this specific case, it seems like this lifter is really responding well to high bar or whoa, whoa, whoa. whatever, you what? know, I know. I oh, use the H word. Yeah. 
Yeah. So whatever, whatever the case might be, right? Like whatever movement they respond well to, they seem to be responding well to it. So let's, let's keep doing that. You know? Yeah. Um, I think from like a mechanistic way, I mean, so we know that the two inputs towards strength display, uh, for strength display are movement proficiency or neuromuscular efficiency mm -hmm. and hypertrophy. So within that mm -hmm. realm, you know that signal attenuation accrues as you continue to be exposed to the same things over time. This is whether that's an adaptive process or whether that's due to RBE or, you know, the repeat about effect or whether that's due to something else, something else is going on. Like we know that that happens, the time courses dependent on the individual and their training history and a bunch of other factors. So yes, it's super messy. However, let's just accept the fact that, uh, over time, if you do the same thing over and over and over again, uh, that signal, the signal to get bigger muscles for, for one side of this equation wanes you could make an argument that train like novel exercises that are still fairly similar to the thing that you're trying to test later on would generate a larger hypertrophy response um especially if the volume is appropriate but there's a bunch of individual inter-individual variability amongst everything i just said there and so it is less clear <laughs> i've tried i tried testing yeah. you know I, I do and i continue it makes me feel scientific when i do when i do this so i'll like I'll try to match up a bunch of people based on their training age, like where I feel they're at and kind of how well they, I think they respond to training just as in a general sense. And I'll like split them with, you know, certain variations and certain uh, uh, amount of variations, like depending on how many slots they have. And I'll just try to see if I can get a, a sense of like, does more variation help? For, and yeah. the only thing that I found, the two things I found to correlate well end up being like total, total volume is like, it's pretty, pretty strong correlate correlation there. And then the amount of exposures uh -huh. they've had to the, the lift pattern. So if I am jamming somebody's, uh, like squat, uh, a freak, uh, exposure up, they were previously squatting twice per week. Uh, and now it's four times per week with, with more variations, but the volume is overall the same that the, it seems like the increased amount of exposure to the lift helps them realize their peak form a little sooner than the folks who are squatting with less exposures, but it's not a strong enough correlate yeah. for me to be like routinely putting it in there because I I've seen people crash and burn right. on it too. And I'm like, Oh, well, damn it. Just when I think that I'm all getting to something, you know, you just, you just get <laughs> a wider swath of the population and you find out that you're wrong horribly. So. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't apply quite as, as, uh, much or as nicely as you'd hope. Yeah. yeah but yeah, there. Again, we're like a very complex system. It's very difficult to like really have black and white things about training as it turns out. Uh, so yeah. someone's yeah. making an argument, yeah. you just, you know, you just change one variable at a time. It's like, well, you, you, you no. can't, not only you can't, can you not do it? <laughs> Cause if you push one, you pull, pull well, one lever, even you if, change a bunch of things, yeah. even if you could, right. Like you, even if you could, like you're not, technically not the same organism as you were in the last right, trial exactly. that you did. You just have twins. You, know? you need twins for like, all these things. <laughs> just like matched. <laughs> the match set. Right. right. Yeah. No, it's, you know, and, and that's kind of a, a really interesting problem uh, as well, you know, and, and, and one that I, I'm not sure that there's a really great solution to, you know, it, it, the, the, analogy that I've come up with is it's like trying to find your way through a cave 
in the dark. But the rocks move around from time to time. Oh, God. You know? I don't know the nightmares, <laughs> but now I'm going to. This is terrible. <laughs> but I, I think if you have, so like the, like I keep talking a lot lately about uh, this emerging strategies tool. I feel like that's like giving you a pen light. Wait, pen light? You know? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> you can't say that either. I know. I keep using keep using the local swear words, but uh, no, a, a pen light. So it it doesn't it doesn't illuminate the entire cave. You know, it it can't. You know, um, but it it does help you see the lay of the land of where you're at right now and kind of what's in your immediate vicinity. You know, and this may be, you may be kind of on the right track or maybe not, but I think that's where you need something else. You need kind of a heuristic for how to get through most caves most of the time, you know, and I think that's where exercise science plays a big role. Uh, that's where, you know, just kind of your, there's something to be said for a, a coach's intuitive process, sure. I think, as well. well coach anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I mean, that's got to be like arranged properly in the whole hierarchy of, of knowledge thing, you know, um, but that's actually, yeah. that's actually a good segue, uh, to this. So, so for aspiring coaches, right. They're out there, they get the feet wet, they're in the trenches. They're actually seeing humans in real life. Uh, do you have any must read books? These don't have to be necessarily training related, but if they were, I mean, people ask us all the time and, uh, you know, we have a, I have a standard list. I tell people you got to read starting strength. You got to read practical programming. You should read science and practice and strength conditioning from Zasiorski. And then after you've read those three things and you've like chewed on them a while, you'll know what to read next. I feel, I just feel like once you make it through that, I mean, it's a good starting place. It's certainly not all encompassing yeah. and there's stuff that's wrong sure. in all of those books. So, but, but it gives you a mm-hmm. good place to start. So do you have any must read yeah. books for folks? Gosh, I, I don't know if any of these are, are really must reads, but I can tell you some things that, uh, that I personally found impactful sure. uh, on the training side. Uh, there's squat every day by Matt Perryman. Oh yeah. Uh, I think, I think that's a free Kindle book. Yeah. Um, it's somewhere. So, free anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, and, and I'll go ahead and say that it's not so much about the program, but how he thinks about training and how he approaches uh, this whole epistemological problem of what's knowable and, and stuff like that. I, I think if you read that book and, and try to see how he thinks, I think that's super useful. Um, I also liked anti-fragile as well. Uh, it's not at all training related, uh, but just kind of from an understanding of, of risk management. Um, keep in mind, if you read that book, that, it's not about him being right because he does talk about lifting weights, but like from a casual standpoint. And if you know anything about lifting weights, you're going to read that and you roll your eyes and you go, yeah, that's not right. (laughs) You know, it's not about being right. It's about not being wrong in a fatal way. Right. Right. You know, the risks are very high. Uh, yeah, yeah. I I actually read that book after I read skin in the game and I was like, Wow. Uh, why didn't I read this stuff earlier? It's like, yeah, I, I haven't read skin in the game yet. I, I want to, yeah. um, but yeah, I, I thought anti-fragile was, was quite good. Um, 
you know, honestly, that's, that's all that's coming to mind immediately. Um, but yeah, I, I think just kind of, as far as books go, especially training wise, I, I like to, um, I, I would say most of my education came from, um, you know, articles and, and, uh, just kind of becoming familiar with what people think, because a lot of that stuff is just out there available yeah. uh, nowadays with podcasts and whatnot, like people put their philosophies out there. And so if you, if you start there, then that kind of directs you on what you think is interesting. Yeah. The, inter- the internet is over, uh, overflowing <laughs> with knowledge. Yeah. I, I find that, um, probably a, a, a large barrier to, to using that to like, just doing that is a, um, uh, if you haven't learned how to learn yet, then it is very uh-huh. difficult to consume information voraciously and then think critically about it because oh, yeah. you haven't learned that skill. Uh, I mean, I, people, I get a lot of Instagram live questions like, Hey, what should I major in in college? I'm like, dude, I don't know. But like, look, it doesn't matter. Thing one, like it doesn't, yeah. it just, you just need to learn <clears throat> two things in, in college from a, like, that's really why, why you're there, how to think critically. Right. And then how to like finish a task that you started in, in, in a way that, yeah. <laughs> that fulfills the like, checks, fulfills the criteria. I mean, that's really, really yeah. why you're there outside of the social aspect. But, uh, so <laughs> I wouldn't know about that. I went to the air force Academy. <laughs> maybe you didn't miss out. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that, that I would agree though. If you have a, an ability to learn well, then you can find a lot of the stuff you just keep consuming stuff. And a lot of it's on the internet. A lot of it's free, which is cool. You don't need to go necessarily yeah. take a class unless you have no anatomy background and can't teach it to yourself or physiology background. and can't teach it to yourself. Then, well, you hire a professional and go to, go to school, go to school and get a, take a class. But, uh, yeah. And, and I suppose that would serve as a good, uh, good BS detector, you know, uh, like if you've got, uh, I think Greg has talked about that before as well. Like, uh, you know, like reading a, an anatomy or physiology, uh, textbook, which, I'm sure it sounds thrilling to, to everyone, hey man, but I have a master's anatomy. That sounds like a great Friday night for me. But just that that would serve as, as a good BS detector, you know? So like when you are reading about so-and-so and they're talking about, uh, overspeed this and that, you know, and you go, eh, uh, no, that's not, that's not how that works. You know? Yeah. I, well, right. I actually like for critical thinking, I like uh, a book called How Doctors Think, which, you know, as much crap as doctors get just for being arrogant, which is whatever. That's probably true on some level. Uh, that book is actually super interesting about how to like make it's very similar to anti-fragile and sort of like a, a general sort of like you're you have decisions to make. And if you make one decision, you might have a huge, huge like fatal error that's that's really important right yeah. and so you need to be like on the lookout for that and if you don't see it you, you know you don't have enough information to actually make a decision um so i actually thought that was a super interesting book but uh yeah that's a good place for people to start so look guys we just took care of you for the next year for reading material you're fine you're fine <laughs> um all right mike you're awesome i like you i'm sad we're not eating steak right now i'm also it's also interesting that you're in wichita texas but uh, yeah. I want to plug all yeah. of your stuff. So your website's reactive training systems.com. Um, right. I don't want people directly emailing you, but they can email you through the site. Um, yeah. I mean, well, however, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of email through the site. Uh, or if you do prefer a direct email, it's Mike at reactive training systems.com. Okay. Do you want people to slide in your DMS? I mean, you're on Instagram now. You're yeah, Insta, that's you're Insta famous. 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, are you big? Send me big Mike. What is your What's your Insta handle? Uh, Mike Tushier. Oh. So it's probably pretty impossible to find. No. <laughs> too many you can't do it. Yeah. Too many confidence. No, uh, reactive training systems, pretty much anywhere. Mike Tushier, pretty much anywhere. Uh, we've got a good YouTube channel. Um, on the website, uh, one thing I'll say is that we've got a training log uh, that's available to anybody to use for free. Uh, you just go onto the website, you log in, and you click on apps, and you're there. It's a web app, so it'll run in your browser. Um, you can log your training. Uh, you can do like all this analysis, um, run block reviews and stuff like that. We designed this training log so that it helps you make better training decisions. If people log for a lot of different reasons, that's why we built this one, so you can make better training decisions. That's cool. And it's, um, it's free? Yeah, wow. for everybody. Uh, there's a, a, a recovery tracker that we call uh, Track. Um, that that also is available for free. Body weight tracking, like all this stuff is, is right there for you. All right. Well, hey, uh, Mike. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm going to get this. It's going to be great. People leave your comments, leave, leave comments below, share this. Uh, and we really appreciate you guys tuning in. All right, Mike, we'll talk to you soon, man. Yep. Talk to you soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.